And if our whole definition of health is based around this perfect state of of um, physical, psychological, and social well-being, well, then we're going to be frustrated, and it's it's diametrically opposed to our life trajectory. Mm. But more importantly, it, it may distract us from something which is f- more fundamental, which is our capacity to experience healing or health, even uh, healing or what we might call health in a different concept. When we are well, when we are sick and getting treatment that's working, when we're sick and getting treatment that doesn't work, and even when there's no further treatment available to us up to the point we're dying. So if it's true that we can experience healing in that environment, well, then that is very important and very fundamental part of, of both our lives and of healthcare. Hey there, everybody, and welcome to episode 16 of Contemplate This, Conversations on Contemplation and Compassion. I am your host, Tom Bushlack, and this episode is an interview with Dr. Barry White, MD. Dr. White is a medical doctor and a hematologist by training. He's also the executive board member of VHI Health and Wellbeing, which is a part of VHI and is the largest health insurance provider in Ireland. Now, as some of you know, I recently began a new position as Regional Director of Mission Integration with SSM Health here in St. Louis, Missouri. When I mentioned this to Father Lawrence Freeman, whom I interviewed in episode 14, he immediately sent an email introducing me to Dr. Barry White. Dr. White was a keynote speaker at the John Main Seminar in 2018, which is hosted every year by the World Community for Christian Meditation, of which Father Lawrence is the executive director. I watched his talk, which is available on Vimeo, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. And his talk is all about a contemplative approach to medicine and also includes a study that he did of teaching doctors and nurses and other providers in a really stressful, busy emergency department in Ireland. So Barry has this contemplative understanding of health and healthcare that is subtle and could radically transform how we think about the practice of medicine, especially in modern society. So whether you're a practitioner of medicine, a healthcare provider, someone who works in healthcare, or just a patient of modern healthcare, which is just about everybody, you are going to find this interview powerful and thought-provoking. So you can find the show notes for this episode at thomasjbushlack.com forward slash episode 16. That's episode 16 with no spaces. You can also link there to Barry's talk at the John Main Seminar, and you can make a free will donation to support the podcast as you are able. If you would take a minute to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify. I'd also be really grateful if you take a moment to share the podcast on social media, leave reviews, or make a donation as you are moved and so able. These small contributions make a huge difference in my ability to keep producing more shows and spread it to more people. So thank you for doing that. All right, with that introduction, let's jump right into my interview with Dr. Barry White. All right, it's my pleasure to welcome you, Dr. Barry White, to contemplate this 
thanks for finding the time and uh, appreciate you being on the show. You're welcome, Tom. Nice to meet you. Yeah, you too, uh, virtually. So uh, as, as I've said in the introduction, uh, you're both a medical doctor, um, but also a devoted practitioner of Christian meditation and contemplative prayer. So why don't you start by just telling people a little bit about who you are and where you are in the world and how you brought together medicine with your contemplative practice. So I'm a, a hematologist. Uh, and I um, have practiced uh, as a specialist for approximately 20 years. And my interest in uh, contemplative practice was that I was introduced to meditation by Lawrence Freeman, who's a Benedictine monk, up to about 17 years ago. And I practiced it intermittently. Uh, for a period of um, about 10 years, uh, understood the benefit from it, uh, but wasn't a consistent practitioner. And then about 10 years ago, I went on a further retreat uh, with Lawrence Freeman and embedded that practice then thereafter uh, on a um, sort of a permanent basis and found it really very beneficial. And I'll talk to you in a moment as to why I found such a, such a convergence between the practice of meditation and practice of medicine. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, for the last sort of 10 years, then I've been more active practitioner of, of meditation. So what interests me about, um, that, then I should say we, after a few years of, 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 uh, after, after really embedding the practice on a, a regular basis, I was then asked, would we run a program for doctors and nurses to teach them meditation? So we started teaching doctors and nurses meditation. And again, I identified that there was a real benefit, a real gap and a need for a contemplative practice in, in modern medicine. Mm. And the reason for this is that if we look and see what health is, there's, there's two different ways of looking at it. We can look at health as a state where we are um, physically healthy and have no psychological or social distress. And that's all well and good, but it's not very often that we're in that perfect state. And, and the trajectory of our life is very much the opposite of that. So we're going to get older, we're going to get illnesses. And if our whole definition of health is based around this perfect state of of um, physical, psychological, and social well-being, well, then we're going to be frustrated. And it's, it's diametrically opposed to our life trajectory. Mm. But more importantly, it, it may distract us from something which is more fundamental, which is our capacity to experience healing or health, even uh, healing or what we might call health in a different concept. When we are well, when we are sick and getting treatment that's working, when we're sick and getting treatment that doesn't work, and even when there's no further treatment available to us up to the point we're dying. So if it's true that we can experience healing in that environment, well, then that is very important and very fundamental um, part of, of both our lives and of healthcare. And of course, that's true. And anybody who practices uh, any of the different disciplines within medicine has seen that, or even people who haven't practiced medicine at all, but have experienced loved ones dying 
that it, while it's not a universal practice, some people do experience this sense of healing. So perhaps a, a broader definition of, of health should include that experience of, of healing. The challenge for us is how do how do we both facilitate uh, our patients to experience that healing and how do we experience it ourselves? And I think there is the tradition both within Christian meditation, outside of Christian meditation, but the, the, the practice of meditation goes back thousands of years. And it, I suppose the teachings are not dissimilar in this area, which is that that we are full of distractions and we need to be still. And when we're still, we are become more aware. And when we become more aware, we're more likely to, to experience healing. Hmm. And when we're distracted and caught up with our worries, we're less likely to. So the what I was very interested in in meditation is, is that it is a practice which teaches us um to be still so that we can see um not just the technical things that we need to do right but also we can facilitate and give the quality of attention that will facilitate healing in patients mm -hmm. and facilitate healing in ourselves so there is this important relationship between between the purity of our attention our capacity to experience a more enhanced level of awareness the more meaningful nature of our relationships that occur as a result and our experience of healing. So you could say we need a contemplative practice for two reasons. One is so that we're more still, so that we can be more better clinicians. And also from a technical perspective, uh, less distracted, more present, uh, but also so that we can become uh, we can experience something deeper about our own lives uh, in the form of what we might call healing, and we can facilitate other, the, the quality of attention that we're giving can facilitate that to occur in the people we're looking after. So that that is really uh, where I think meditation is, is is has a lot to offer to medicine and health in its broader context. We did do a study where we looked at, after a number of years, we were, we were running this program and uh, we, we did a study within the emergency department where we looked at teaching the practice of meditation to doctors and nurses. And the outcome of that study was that the doctors and nurses who practice meditation had, had much less levels of burnout. They were less anxious, they were less stressed, and they had other, some physiological benefits, such as they slept better um, and had um, other uh, positive changes in their uh, immune system and cardiovascular system. Mm. So that's not the reason to meditate, but it, mm. it is an interesting finding. Uh, and we would, we would never say to people, meditate to, to improve your sleep. Uh, it just mm. happens to be a positive benefit. I don't think that's the reason to do it. I think the reason to do it is, is, is something deeper. So that, that, that really is the, the background to my own experience with, with meditation and, and with teaching meditation in a healthcare environment. Wow, that was incredible. 
uh, we could stop there and this would be a powerful interview, but fortunately we, we have some time. Uh, so I've, I've watched the video that you gave at the John Main Center and I'll put a link to it in the show notes for this. But one of the things that I really wanted to draw out from that was the way you discuss a definition of health and you just went right there. And, um, boy, there's, there's so many things I want to follow up on and what you just said, I guess one um, that I think is an important link that one recognizes in a contemplative practice is that especially being in a healing profession such as you are, and I work with a lot of doctors and nurses and other healthcare providers right now, um, the, the healing, there's a really direct relationship between the kind of internal healing that one experiences and even welcomes and the ability to connect and share that with patients. And I wonder if um, you could say more about how you've experienced that yourself as a physician. So I would, I think, and I, and I would say a number of the other physicians that were part of the program that, and nurses that were part of the program where, where, where they learned the practice of meditation. I think that you could say that your ability to pay attention to a patient is significantly improved. And your ability to be aware of all the factors that are at play is significantly improved. And that's a hard thing to measure. Mm. Um, but but I, I, I think that it, it is, it is a, you could say it's a, it's a consistent qualitative finding that we have had from people who've learned the practice who are, who are we're practicing nurses, doctors, and other healthcare professionals. I suppose the interesting point is what, and maybe this is what you're asking, do, do you go on then and say to patients, well, I, I want to teach you how to meditate as part of the treatment that I'm going to, I'm going to give you. Hmm. And I, I haven't, that's not something I do. Uh, maybe it's something I should do. <laughs> I, I think that the point is that, um, and certainly I wouldn't refuse to discuss it with, with patients, but I, I haven't actually said to patients, oh, I think you should meditate. Other people do that and, and have done it and fa have found it very beneficial. So I think it's an interesting point. I, I, I feel that in a sense that, that the most important thing is that I am centered myself first, and that, that is, is, the, is the first step on, on me ha helping my patients experience healing in other words that i the quality of attention and awareness that i have is is first and for, foremost the most important thing that i can i can do and yeah so so i haven't i, I don't actually teach them how to meditate mm -hmm. yeah and that wasn't necessarily what i was going for but it's an interesting question because of course you have examples like john cabot zinn who i'm sure you're familiar with his work uh, though not yeah. not in the Christian contemplative tradition, more of a, I guess, a secularized form of Buddhist meditation that he teaches as a doctor. Um, but what I think you're highlighting, and I might even, after listening to you and reflecting, I might even rephrase it, because I had put it more in terms of um, sort of the quality of the being of the physician or the healer. But I think if I keep peeling that onion, the healing is actually a function of the quality of the relationship 
And one could say that in a contemplative practice as a quality of relationship with God that facilitates healing. And then that experience becomes so deeply embedded in the, in the person after practice and consistency um, that then that sort of just naturally spills over into all relationships. So you focused in particular on the healing relationship that a physician or a nurse has with a patient. Um, so it, it, in some ways it shifts it from the actual healer to the quality of the relationship and attentiveness that's brought. So it's kind of a decentering from the self. Does that make sense? Yeah. With your experience, so, I guess. Yeah, no, yeah, I think you've stumped it up perfectly there. So, so I think there's two points you've made. I think one is that the capacity to heal and the capacity to experience health in that context is something that um, at some level you could say we've medicalized, when in mm -hmm. fact this is part of the human experience. And, and you could also argue that, in fact, other uh, aspects of, of hu human experience have, have articulated this to a much better degree than we have in medicine. Mm -hmm. uh, and we see it from the, the mystics, um, of the different traditions have articulated very clearly. You know, the poets talk about it. So, so I do agree with you that, that, it, that this is something that is beyond medicine. It's, um, and it's, it's something which defines our capacity, to, our human existence is, is this capacity to experience something deeper, to be more aware, to a deeper meaning to life. And that, you, 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 that is that brings us to a point where we experience healing, he healing, which is, is not transient in the sense of our, because our technical cures are the treatments that we might receive, which are great and we definitely want them, but they ultimately run out on us in life. So that I suppose another way of looking at this is, is in a sense to say that it is the relationship between being and doing, which is that, you could argue that that health and healing is a is a, is a place where where being and doing are in harmony and where where doing is is resting in being and being is primary in that in that relationship and when we're unhealthy our doing is separated from from pure being hmm. and we are not going to be satisfied in that space we we can endlessly exercise yourself and i'm talking about doing is not just the doing activities i'm talking about the doing of our mind as well which is primarily where we spend a lot of energy mm -hmm. which is our thoughts and and our looking at the what, what has gone before us and what's going into the future and planning and all sorts of 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 intellectual constructs they are doing and when they get disconnected from our source of being you could say we're we're that is a state of ill health and on health and what and and we know that we are conditioned so that we keep drifting into that space and that's why we need a contemplative practice to bring us back and again if you look at all the different traditions it, you can't do that once a week you can't do that twice a week you 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 need to have a practice that's regular and is embedded and that that practice is 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 at least a twice daily practice hmm. And that, and so that, and that, that separation and from being is is also what causes us to be distracted and and unaware, and and perhaps you could argue is 
is, is the root of some of our challenges in all areas of life, including in medicine. So do I want to see somebody who's distracted? So I think that person is going to be a doctor that gives me good quality of care that, and an experience that I really appreciate in a meaningful relationship. Or do I think, or who would I prefer to see somebody who is, who is that sort of more peaceful, or less distracted, fully aware, giving me good attention? What type of, of quality of care do I get, and what is the nature of that relationship likely to be? Well, clearly, it's it's going to be more. I want to see the person who's 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 aware and is paying attention. Hmm. I wonder what you think of this statement as a physician that perhaps uh, that separation between being and doing that is particularly driven, I think, in, a, in late modern culture um, is even a source, not the only source, but a source of, of physical manifestations of illness. I suppose two things on it. I, I would say is the, the, I would suggest that if you read back, we notice that the, that this challenge of being distracted and being separated from a point of being or, or where our being and doing is, is not in harmony is, is a challenge, seems to be a challenge for us going way back in time, even before you have all the modern distractions. Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting point, an important point. It's almost, a, it's our state that we need to be aware of. It's our predisposition. And it seems that that, that challenge was really strong, even to, even to the early contemplatives. This is yeah. what they were struggling with. This was their big challenge, their big struggle to, to be still, to be still in their minds, to, to deal with the endless distractions, which are primarily driven by, their, by our ego. So I think that clearly modern society brings with it a whole host of, of distractions. And you could argue they're, they're much greater than they were 2,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago. But you could also argue that the, the big distractions are, are inside us and we're, we're coded to deliver such a level of distraction that, that, that whatever happens outside, there's still buckets inside to keep us keep us distracted and challenged mm. so that, that's the um so that, that was one point the, the other question you raise is the relationship between our this this state of being our our also linked to our you could argue our psychological state and the manifestations of of physical illness that's the that's what you're asking is is there a relationship in it other is. words can can we not just have a a what better word a, a deeper personal experience of healing what's the relationship between that and our capacity to physically heal from the more technical aspect of healthcare and my own perspective on that is i originally would have been very skeptical to it <laughs> would have thought there isn't much of a, a much of a connection i think that i uh, as time goes by, I'm, we often talk about evidence, conventional medicine being, being a space where there's a great evidence base and anything outside of that in, in the areas that we might talk about of, of contemplative practice are evidence-free and there's no evidence to support them. But I, I think that's 
there's an increasing recognition that that's not true, that a lot of conventional medical practice is not evidence-based. And a lot, and there is uh, a lot of qualitative evidence and an increasing amount of quantitative evidence, even though the research methodologies are, are hard to apply to this environment, that, that contemplative practices can have impacts on our body, our, our physical state, whether it's our sleep. And we know that there's increasing evidence that sleep is really important. So if there's a relationship between our ability to practice, our practice of meditation and sleep, well, then clearly it, it, there's a, there would be an argument that that is having an impact on, on uh, the, the health impacts of poor sleep. Mm. Um, so, I, so I do think that it's an area that requires, just purely from a scientific perspective, it requires additional study because it's a very interesting area, probably a very rich area. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And it's it's been that 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 has um, has has been neglected at least up until recently. Hmm. There were two two quotes that came to my mind as you were responding to that question, and one was from Gregory of Nyssa, who was um, fourth, I think, fourth century early theologian, who uh, went to a monastery and then wrote that I, I left the world to go to the monastery, but I found that I couldn't leave myself behind, <laughs> that his mind was still full. Um, that mm-hmm. was a paraphrase, but uh, ge- in general what he said. Um, but the other one that, that stood out to me comes from, a, from Daniel Siegel, who's a, a psychiatrist, an MD uh, in, in the United States. And there's a quote from him that I use in a lot of workshops where he talks about integration and linking together differentiated and separated parts into a coherent whole is how he defines integration. And then he says that integration is the basis of all health. And so my question about the mind body connection or the mind body spirit connection and its relationship to physical health was kind of exploring that insight that he has. Um, And it's interesting because he draws it out of neuroscience um, and neurological connections that are strengthened and enhanced by meditation and contemplative prayer. Um, but also in relationships and other realms. Uh, so it seems like there's some sort of universal truth that contemplative traditions kind of view in one way and modern scientific empirical research views in another way. But I don't think that they have to be so radically separate as they tend to be sometimes in our culture. Yes, and I think it's perhaps an unfolding, you could say. In other words, it's because modern science is so young and it's gone off in a certain direction and has had such success that it hasn't needed to to really come back and explore this. But I think in time we'll see that there is, you're you're absolutely right, that there is a a um there's a lot to be learned from the past in respect to this. And perhaps meditation is the, is the most ancient healing practice that we have. Absolutely. Yeah. Huh. And I think sometimes, um, how should I put this? In my own approach, and I, I'm not a physician, but I do work in healthcare now in more in mission integration. I think sometimes um, there might be a fear that bringing in uh, more ancient classical spiritual 
theological or philosophical traditions is going to sort of, um, we're going to go back in time and get rid of all the advances in modern medicine. Um, as opposed to how can we, and you did this really well, I think, in your John Main talk, sort of honor the absolutely incredible, mind-blowing advances in modern science and, and take what's good from that method and integrate it with the, the broader human tradition, humanistic tradition, perhaps. Um, I, I, am I putting words in your mouth to say that that's sort of part of what you're striving for in your, in your recent work? Yeah, so, so I think if you look at our healthcare systems and look at the challenges they face, they face challenges across areas of quality, patient experience, cost effectiveness, and sort of burnout or working with other people, yeah. the whole people, people element. And if, in very simplistic terms, you just look across, across the, with those four domains. Others would talk about maybe up to eight domains, but let's just look at it from those four domains. We have technical solutions to try and enhance serious failings in each of those areas. But it's sometimes very hard to, there's a missing link, it's sometimes very hard to, to actually make improvements. So we've identified major safety concerns in the way medicine is practiced. Sometimes, and we've, ident and we've got programs and of, of teaching people how to practice safer medicine. But perhaps the missing ingredient in this is, is, is a level of a enhanced level of awareness. Hmm. So if I have somebody who is more aware, it's much easier for them to be practice safer medicine. They're more likely to, to, be a, uh, to, to have a meaningful relationship with their patients. They're even more likely to be more cost effective and they're a much better person to work with. Hmm. So you're absolutely right. I, I think you could say that if we were to rest all the advances of modern medicine on a bed of enhanced awareness, we would see very significant improvements in, in how not, not just the, our capacity to experience healing or to facilitate people to experience healing, but also in how we're technically doing healthcare. Hmm. So, so they're not mutually exclusive. In fact, they're mutually beneficial, mutually reinforced the contemplative practice is the capacity to enhance the great advances of medicine as opposed to to uh, throw it out. Hmm. As you talk about that, I'm, I'm thinking of a, a conversation that I just had yesterday with, um, well, three of our doctors in, our, in the healthcare system that I work in. And they were talking about training residents early in their career to see and even ask questions of their patients that go beyond the acute presenting symptoms. Uh, and they were pediatricians, so they were working with children and then families. Um, to ask questions about social determinants of health um, and see, and so there's, there were, they were bringing a broader awareness of that health has to do more with just the sort of acute symptom, though that's where it starts. Um, and that we get better outcomes if we can integrate those people into healthy communities and networks of, of human relationship. So that seems like there's an interesting additional layer there of um, when we bring that awareness into a care setting, that we see the wholeness of the patient beyond just the symptom 
Uh, one of the doctors that I have worked with always says, you know, we don't, we don't treat diseases. We pe- retreat people. Uh, and people are whole. <laughs> um, so I don't, do you, have you done, I don't know what the differences are. I know you're in Ireland. Um, and it's a different healthcare system, but is that a piece that you see from a contemplative perspective as well as some of those social determinants of health um, and how those affect our health outcomes as well? Yeah, so, the, so that, that challenge that, you, that you're referring to, which is that we just focus on the, on the acute episode is, is a universal problem in all healthcare systems. So it does reflect something fundamental about how medicine has evolved. And, and perhaps it is, it is just due to the pressure that people feel they're under. The, the, yeah. You know, there's an increasing volume of, of medical activity and work that, a, that clinicians have to do. And again, in, let's just say in a more distracted, in a more, that creates, that super, is superimposed on our baseline predisposition to be distracted creates a challenging environment. And, and the response very often in that situation is just to deal with things in a, in a less aware way that we're, we're just trying to cope with the problem that presents us. I just don't have time to, to focus on other things. I've got to see so many patients in a clinic. Mm-hmm. And I think that the, the, when you practice, if you're going to practice meditation, it's not going to increase the number of doctors. It's not going to increase the number of hours in your day, but it does have the opportunity to increase the quality of your attention and your awareness as I was describing earlier on and I think in that context it opens our mind to the to the psychological social factors at play not and not just the physiological uh, factors at play in the acute presentation and it also even even if the duration of time we have available to us is still as constrained it will allow us to use that time better. So even, even just that, uh, I may not have an hour to sit down and talk to a patient about all the other aspects of, of their life that may be relevant, but I'm at the very least for that period of time that I'm with them, I'm alert and aware and awake to the other dimensions of the person. And even if it's only for 30 seconds or a minute, I'm touching on the, those components, which I, which I have have the time and, and it's appropriate to deal with at that moment. Clearly, if I've got a patient whose blood pressure is dropping and they're bleeding, I, you know, that's not the time to have a discussion about the, <laughs> you know, their wider social issues in their life. There's that's right. a time, that's a time for something else. And right. but that level of awareness allows you to be aware of that. You might see other factors which are relevant, like that there's a child in the room, or you know, when this a deterioration is occurring, and you're aware of those of those issues and you might have a limited amount of time but a need to 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 make adjustments or make decisions and uh, that are 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 outside of your core focus which is to sort of institute the necessary medical procedures but it does give you the perspective of 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 the, the other dimensions even if you're not choosing to to engage in in all the areas that or you don't have time to do it mm. So, so I, I do think that fundamentally it, it opens up that dimension that, that you can see the other things that you should be addressing. And assuming you have time, it, it allows you in a, in a very time efficient way to, to seek to address them. 
Mm. So I agree with you totally. I think that I think that that dimension of looking at a, at a at a whole person is is really um, is is missing, and it may not just be missing because we don't have time. It also may be missing because the time that we have, we're not using it, and we're not being as attentive as we could be. Mm. And what a contemplative practice allows us to do is at least fix one of those, which is to be as as attentive and as aware as possible uh, to address those issues that that we're allowed to, uh, the time allows us to address. Yeah. Well, I'm recognizing that uh, we have just a short amount of time, (laughs) ironically, left. Um, So I guess there's two things that I really wanted to ask you, uh, left anyways, I could keep going for hours, but one is, if you could speak a little bit about how you integrate your own personal practice into the challenges and stresses of being a practicing physician. Actually, let me just ask that one and pause and then I'll do the second one. So I, my own practice is, is the practice of meditation twice a day. And I try as much as possible to, to do that. There obviously are times where, you know, I don't get to do it. Um, usually they're the times where I need it most. <laughs> um, I mean, one of the things that, in, in terms of the actual practice that I've, I've found, and it, it's true with me as well as a lot of other doctors, is that, that we are constantly in evaluation mode. Mm-hmm. And one of our first distractions that, that, that doctors encounter, I think, quite a lot is, is evaluating, am I any good at this? Mm-hmm. You know, am I doing it right? Or is there other people seem to be much better at this? They're more contemplative. They're, they're sitting there. They're not even thinking of anything. And I'm, my head is just full of this stuff. So I think that um, I have that practice. I've moved beyond that phase to realize there's no such thing as good or bad meditation. And um, I, yeah, so, so I, I do find it very beneficial. I find it uh, perhaps more beneficial when I need it most. And, and occasionally that's the time where, where I miss out on it. So I suppose that the, the first challenge I faced was the scale of distraction. The, the, the second challenge was the uh, embedding the practice into, into my daily life. So getting it in as a practice, a twice daily practice. And I, and I felt that that took, for me, it took about three or four months, really, of just every, practicing it twice a day before. Almost the third the third challenge is, is, in a sense, that if I don't meditate, then I, I'm, I'm very conscious of it. I'm, I'm aware of it. I'm aware that I'm not, um, I'm not attentive enough, that I'm more, more likely to be distracted. Mm. So that that was that's my own journey and my own practice. As I said, I spent a lot of time not meditating, having been aware of the benefits of meditation, but not meditating um, for for a number of years before I locked down a, a regular practice. Yeah, I love that part of how you started your story because I think a lot of people relate to that. They might learn a practice and then practice intermittently, and then get caught up in feeling like they're a failure for not doing it or not doing it right. And I'm doing air quotes, but you can't see me. Um, yeah. But then it's like the seed has been planted. It's 
the spirit is doing that work. Um, and then it sort of begins to take on a life of its own that only, only I think in retrospect becomes visible. Oh, that's what's been going on. <laughs> um, and that God is sort of leading one into deeper and deeper practice. Um, do you have any practical wisdom from that, say that three month period where you were really dedicated to integrating it into a busy schedule? Like, how did you do that? Did you learn anything that might be helpful for others working to do that? So, so I do think it's easier to practice twice a day than once a day or intermittently. I think that's the first thing I learned. Mm -hmm. So it's very hard to, uh, to be an irregular practitioner. You know, to, to to have meaningfully engage in it and to be a regular, and it's much easier when you lock it down as a twice-day practice. So, I'm not sure if that's true for everybody, but that's my own experience was to practice twice a day. Um, Which I is very consistent with not only what you've learned from Lawrence Freeman and what I learned from Thomas Keating, but even most traditions that I've studied. I think that's a fairly standard approach with some yeah. anyway sorry i cut you off please keep going i suppose the other thing is the time of the day so first thing in the morning i um would meditate and i i did notice that when i started meditating that uh i tended to wake up earlier and and be fresher actually and felt like i slept better but i used that opportunity then to to meditate and I found that a really uh, like a great experience to meditate at the start of the day before the day has begun before the world is awake and then the second time of the day was um, more like about six o'clock or seven o'clock and not immediately before going to sleep so that so those were the two times a day that I, f I found most effective and gave me a, a sense of balance during the day as well. Mm. Um, I'm trying to think, is there anything else over that period of time that I found helpful? I, I also think you, you need a real sense of commitment over that period of time to just really stay with it. And I think that if you if you go in, if you if you try to embed that practice half-hearted without a real intention, then I think I think it's it's hard to sustain it. So I was very committed to the idea that I'm going to do this for this period of time. Um, and I, I also think the reason I was continuing to do it is I was I was feeling a manifestation of or feeling the benefit, starting to feel the benefits, but uh, not trying to analyze them. Hmm. Hmm. That's significant because it seems like you're, you were learning to disengage from that critical mind that is so beneficial in some contexts and so not helpful in others. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. So, so I think the best description of it is meditation is an evaluation for it. For me, it's an evaluation free zone. Now that is ironic given the fact that I just talked what, what we're doing now, which is evaluating it. And <laughs> I did a study to evaluate it. So perhaps I'm not fully living, living that, but I, I, I do believe it, which is well, I would make, at least in the I very practical. I would make a distinction between evaluation and wisdom. And I think what you just shared is wisdom born from your experience that you've reflected on. So there's a sort of evaluation, but, but it's more of like a, 
here, here's how the spirit has been at work for me. And, and I always encourage people in workshops and talking with them to, that there isn't a right way to do it. And it even changes at different stages in life. Um, you know, right now I've got young kids. And so my practice looks very different from when I was in my twenties and single and underemployed and had all kinds of free time. And it will look different when my kids are older and um, that that's okay. There's an ebb and flow to the contemplative life and the practice. And the one other thing that I would say to people who are busy in, in busy lives that, and it's my own experience and, and I, it's the experience that I've heard a lot of other people speak to is that, is that meditate, the time you spend in meditation, you get back uh, many fold. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, so I, if I meditate, I'm so much more productive during the, my working hours of the day. Um, so, so that many people say, I'm, oh, I'm just, I would love to be able to do that, but I, but I don't have the time to do it. But then if we truly reflected on how much time we spent in distractive thought or distracted discussion, um, we could perhaps uh, free some of that time for, for a contemplative practice. And if we do that, the rest of the day becomes much more, you could say, justified or meaningful or, mm-hmm. and productive. Hmm. Well, do you have time for one more question or do you need to go? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, one more question would be fine. Yeah. So I want to go from, that was more focused on your personal experience, but then you've taught this to physicians in what you described as a pretty stressful emergency department. And I myself am working with people in my own system to develop some similar programs. Um, so how did you transfer from your own experience to teaching your colleagues and, and sort of helping them move into that space? Do you have any wisdom to share from that experience? I suppose I moved into it with reluctance because <laughs> I just felt, I felt that I, I wasn't really, um, you know, I'd be struggling to practice it myself. So who am I to, to sort of tell other people what the truth of the world is and how to, you know, how to embed such a personal practice as this. So I, I was reluctant to do it. Um, one of the things I have done is that Lawrence Freeman has taught on it with me. So for the most part, I've been with him. Mm. And that helped, that helped quite a lot. I suppose that was, that's the first thing. And the other thing I did learn was instead of saying, look, this is the right or the wrong way of, of meditating or understanding meditation, it was just easier just to say, look, this is my experience. Mm-hmm. And this is a practice. One of the questions that very often comes up is people say, well, um, what, you know, are there other practices? And I tried this and a bit of that and a you know, mindfulness or other other contemplative practices and I suppose I, I don't really get involved in saying one is better than the other all I can say is this is a practice that that will greatly benefit you and in my experience greatly benefits me I should say mm-hmm. and I do think it's important to not not to jump uh, from one area to another uh, I think that's a very important 
not that I I did that myself. In fact, I only learned one way and just stuck with it. But but I do think some people get challenged in it from my own experience of talking to them that they're they're they're, they're jumping from one practice to another, and and I, I don't see that that can help. Hmm. So our approach has been very much here's a practice. It's one of the most ancient healing practices. It goes back a few thousand years, and here is um, a teaching in it. And it's simple, but it's hard. And this is um, this is sort of a gift that's been shared with people. So you can you have to make your own decision as to whether you want to want to go down that journey. For my own per- experience, again, is that people are very open to it. They have they have a need for it, and it does surprise me that different types of people that you would never imagine that would be interested in this whole area who who immerse themselves in it and get great benefit from it. Hmm. And and I also think that we were teaching it in in a secular environment. We weren't teaching it in a in a religious environment, and I and I think that's another interesting point, which is which is. It, it is a, a universal practice. It brings people together. It helps them on their own journey. Um, and I think that is that, that it, it is a soft and very gentle guide. I, I, that your comment about just sharing from personal experience with truth about what works um, and, and offering that not as the one right way or the only right way or even you know the perfect or whatever but saying this is what works for me and I'll share that with you that does tend to draw people in even if they come from different, different. spiritual or faith backgrounds yes and, and my, our own experiences the people who engaged in this came from different backgrounds different spiritual traditions and some people who had a very negative view of of religious traditions are uh, and 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 what surprised me is how how they embraced it hmm. yeah yeah without having to dis- I know you're an expert in theology but without <laughs> getting involved in any theology um, this was just experience yeah I think that's much easier to relate to and um you know, the programs that I'll be working with are going to be done in a Catholic healthcare system. But even then, I think our approach will be very similar to what you've described because we don't, our employees aren't, you know, it's not like we have to hire all Catholics. We've got people from all different kinds of faith traditions. In fact, some of our most devout employees are our Muslim doctors who use our chapel to do their zakat, their five prayers a day. Um, but I think that a contemplative practice is something that people of all, because it's a universal experience, people can come together around. And the other, the other uh, final point to say at the end is that we also felt that we, while we were, we did not engage them in a discussion necessarily around belief systems. We felt that it would be remiss and not, um, complete for them, for us to ignore what the wisdom traditions and the faith traditions had brought to this whole practice. Mm. 
So, so I'm not sure you can just talk about meditate. We can, we can introduce meditation into a secular environment. We can introduce it into an environment where people of different faiths and no faiths uh, can engage in it. And I think that's that's very much where we what we were interested in. But that doesn't mean that you you ignore half or more well large the, the majority of of the knowledge in this area and and presume it doesn't exist so mm-hmm. one of the things that we were very interested in doing just purely from the um you could say the intellectual integrity of it is to ensure that people people were exposed to the to the texts that that speak about contemplative practice and a contemplative way of life and and those texts are you know some of them are uh, from poets some of them are philosophers but it's very hard to beat the contemplative texts from the <laughs> from the wisdom traditions so even in that secular environment we we did speak to them about texts from the different traditions so they would be from the gospels from the upanishads from um from Lao Tzu, and and I think that that really resonated with them. They saw this as something which is was universal, meaningful, and that um, helped them. Well, helped me anyway on 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 our sort of you know experiencing this at a deeper level, yeah, and understanding what it means. And I see that there's a deep respect for people in doing that to say this is these are the integrity of of the traditions from which these come and i'm going to offer that to you and give you the the space to respond to that in whatever way that you want um and that then (laughs) when people are given that freedom they tend to respond pretty positively or find what they need in it yes and very much very often they go back to areas that they're more comfortable in that they may have sort of left behind or not fully appreciated yeah because because even you know that they they may have been aware of of you know religious texts in their own tradition they may have been aware of the of the words but not of the deeper meaning that that they were getting to understand when they came out of from a contemplative perspective yeah that's one of the things i love about the story of john main which Father Lawrence shared in in the the well two podcasts ago now, um, which is you know his going to India and and finding a teacher and the teacher saying, yeah I'll, I'll teach you and I'll, but I want you to practice in your tradition your Christian tradition um, that you hear that a lot um, that we sort of have a native tradition or perspective that we come back to that we interpret through. Yes, and that's that was that's my experience, and yeah, and mine as well. Hmm. Wow. Um, do you have? Well, I, do you need to go? <laughs> <laughs> I probably should. That um, I do need to move off. I'm sorry. You probably have patience. <laughs> There's people waiting for me. Yes. Yeah. Uh, speak about how I've managed time. Uh, better. Yeah. So. Well, I I don't want to cut it off, but I also want to honor your your other commitments. Um, but thank you so much. This is so rich and I feel like there's more. So if you're open to it, maybe we can do a follow-up at some point. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be delighted to. Thank you very much, Tom. Thank you so much. And, uh, hope the rest of your day you are present.
You too, Tom. Great talking. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. I am so grateful that you're here. I recently heard from a listener who told me that she started hosting listening sessions for the episodes at her house with friends and then having discussions afterwards, kind of like a prayer or a study group. I was so gratified to know that people are finding these conversations meaningful and transformative. Again, you can find the show notes for this episode at thomasjbushlack.com forward slash episode 16. That's episode 16 with no spaces. Please take a moment to support the show right now, however you are so moved, by sharing it on social media, leaving a review wherever you download your podcast, or making a free will donation to support the production of the show on the show notes page. Until next time, I hope that you're finding encouragement and inspiration to learn or deepen your own daily contemplative practice. And most importantly, I truly hope that you're finding some of that kind of deep healing that Dr. White talks about in this episode. When we are transformed by grace, we can't help but transform others, and maybe even our little corner of the world, wherever you are. Thank you, and be well. Be well.